So as we begin this morning, I'm going to have you use your imagination a bit. I know you're gathered in church this morning, but I want you to imagine instead that you've arrived for class. And this class is at the seminary, and you're in a class titled Biblical Theology of Worship. That's your class. Some of you are going, I have no clue what that is. What am I in for? It's to study from Scripture what is worship. Let me ask you this question as you're in class, you're my students now. Do you think it matters what we sing? Good answer. Yes. What should inform what we sing? The Word of God. So I'm going to give you some practice with this. Okay? I'm going to put some lyrics up on the board. We're going to look at them. This is your class. This class is what we're doing today. So here's one. Let's look at this. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. What do we have so far? We okay? Absolutely, right? That, that can be completely grounded in Scripture. I mean, that's good stuff right there. Excellent. Let's keep going. Next part says, above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. How are we doing with that one? What happens if you fail this test? What's going to happen? What happens if I'm like, no, wrong? No, that's good. That's good. So let's go into the hook, the chorus, whatever you want to call this part. I'm not a musician. You musicians help me. This might be the chorus. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Okay, I hear some people like the rose part. Like, yeah, that's just a little like uh, some decorative language in there, some, some freedom. Uh, what do we call that? Uh, artistic freedom? Artistic license. There you go. That was a little bit there. Anything else? Are we good? All right, I'm going to challenge you here. Oh, I got some people nodding. No. I got yes and no's. Oh, we're stuck here. All right, we'll just stay here then all day. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> So I hear an answer that says, he did not think of me above all. He thought of the Father above all. We have one great student in here. One person passing. No, we have lots of great students. But yes, that would be correct. This song, although starting off excellent, we get to this one part, and many of us love this song. As a matter of fact, I think Corky, if he was a jukebox, he probably gets more requests for this song than any other. Because all, most of it is great. But if we are going to sing, and if this was a biblical theology of worship class, we cannot sing what the Bible doesn't say. There is something far greater than us. That is God. And there is reason far greater than just us. Now, Jesus loves us. Jesus knew he was going to die for us. But he was doing it for the glory of God, which is far greater than us. So I want you to think about this. Remember, we're still in class now. If a song is written like this, and these lyrics are just like this, and above all, the focus is on us, and that's what we're focused on is us, that somehow we reign supreme, that we're over all things, how do you think that gets played out in our lives? 
I love facial expressions. I wish I could just take pictures of your faces right now. It's great. You're like, eh, uh, uh, all these faces. Okay, you're right for me. But, right? So there's an issue, though. If I think everything is about me, even everything that Christ done revolves around me, then that's the opposite of humility. Scripture is about being humble before God. It's about being in awe of Him. But if I wrap the lyrics of a song about exalting me, guess who's not being exalted? God. That's what I am. That was just one example. As you start listening to music, as you turn on your Christian radio, now you're going to be like, ooh, ow, ah. And you're going to start hearing how much music is exalting us. Worship is exalting God. He is the greatest of all. He is the only one worthy to be praised. So anytime we have a song that turns the focus back upon us, now, that song would have been fine without the name of the song being included above all. Could I say that he thought of me? Sure. But when I say above all, no. He didn't think of me above all. He thought of being obedient unto the Father, of glorifying God. So let's change the lyrics a little bit. What happens if we change the lyrics that says, instead, it says, you took the fall and thought of thee above all. And then God reigns supreme. Then he's above all things. And that's what we're singing. How does that play out in our lives? A lot different, right? At all times, my focus is on him, the supremacy of him. And then I decrease, he increases. This is how our Christian walks should work. That as we mature in the faith, God gets bigger. We have a huge God. We only have a glimpse of him. We've used the illustration before. It's like having all these words in the Bible and just being able to see this. That's the revelation of what we have of God. We have a glimpse. Just a glimpse. But if we forego that and instead we just gaze upon ourselves, oh, woe is our Christian walk. Woe is our Christian witness. As we'll see this morning, everything is for the glory of God. As we go through this study in the Gospel of John, the overarching theme of the whole thing is revealing God's glory. It's seeing God's glory. Today, I want you to know that there is great purpose for your life. You hear that often. And it gets spun in all kinds of directions. But what is that purpose? Today, we're going to unpack that. And to ensure that purpose, God has designed a great plan. And to ensure that that great plan goes through, it's to give us a great possession, a great treasure, one that is beyond imagination. And it is all for the glory of God. If you're taking notes this morning, please write that down, for the glory of God. If you leave this morning and you don't remember anything except that everything is for the glory of God, you've done well. Honestly, if right now you check out, your mind goes somewhere else, you start looking at, you know, something outside the window, and you take with you everything is about the glory of God, you do it. All is for the glory of God. If you would, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's continue in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, picking up where we left off last time. John chapter 12. We'll start in verse 27. I 
I'm going to read the whole text for this morning. It's John chapter 12, starting in verse 27 through verse 36 this morning. Jesus speaking here says, Now is my soul troubled. He says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we take our minds now from a classroom setting and put them directly into your scriptures, Father, we pray that your word would come alive, that you would illuminate your truth to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us this morning. Father, show us how all things are for your glory. God, humble us in your sight that we would exalt you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a little bit of time since we've been in this text, so I'm going to put you in the context. Jesus is on his way. It's the Passover feast. He's in Jerusalem. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions possibly, of people there. It is a big crowd. And some Greeks come saying, we wish to see Jesus. And they want to see Jesus. And then Jesus responds and he starts speaking to them. And this context that we're reading is in context to them being publicly in the crowd. Greeks, not Jews. These are Gentiles now. We don't know the exact timing in that week, but we know that his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his resurrection are imminent. It's upon him. He's saying now is the hour. It's about to happen. We're going to look at three different points this morning. If you're taking notes, the first one's going to be the greatest purpose. The greatest purpose. The second one is the greatest plan. And lastly, we'll look at the greatest possession. The greatest purpose, the greatest plan, and the greatest possession. Starting with our first point, the greatest purpose. By the way, I almost just preached these verses because there's enough here probably could take us weeks to go through. But I decided to pack them in with the rest to keep us in context a little better. But this will be our biggest point this morning. So if I make it through a half hour on this point, you're like, there's no way we're going to get out of here today. We're only on point number one. Don't worry. The other points will catch us up. And I know some of us like perfect symmetry where each point is perfectly placed. This is not going to happen today. Just be ready for it. This will be the one with the most information. Look at me at verses 27, 28. We're going to camp here for a while. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus starts by saying, my soul is troubled. This word means to cause great emotional distress, to cause great mental distress, to be in agony. Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever been emotionally distressed? Have you ever been mentally distressed and agonizing? This is our Jesus to the nth degree agonizing. He's troubled in complete agony. Now, think about it. In human flesh, he's truly man. He's truly God. And if we just looked at him being man, he knows what's coming up. He knows the suffering. Look, your flesh, my flesh, maybe you're like me. When I get a splinter, it hurts. And my wife's here and can attest to it. I cry about that. <laughs> and I whine about this little splinter that keeps bugging me and hurting me in my finger. Why won't the splinter come out? And I take time trying to get this. I'm talking splinter. A little speck of wood or whatever else it is. Imagine what Jesus knows is going to come. Beyond the humiliation, beyond the... The, the, the spitting on him, the mockery of him, put that all aside. I'm talking about the physical part. The flogging, the ripping of his flesh off his back. Now, I'm upset when I have a splinter. Ripping flesh off my back? No. But beyond that, imagine taking like a, a, a railroad stake and having that driven through your hands, through your feet, and then all of your weight hanging on that. I'm upset about a splinter. I'm just talking about the humanity of him. If that was us and we knew the type of physical suffering coming, we would probably be agonizing, just thinking about the physical part. Now, there was something far greater for our Lord. It wasn't just the physical part. It was the spiritual part. It's what else would take place. But here he is, and he's agonizing. And anybody in their right mind, just humanly speaking, would be agonizing as well. If they knew they were about to be tortured, they'd be agonizing. But what did Jesus do in response to this agony? We're going to unpack what he does, that he speaks to the Father. There's much more to this agonizing as we'll unpack together. He, being Jesus, was the perfect Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God. He was the spotless and unblemished one. He was the one who was tempted in every way, yet never gave in to temptation, never sinned. He was the one who God would impute our sins unto and then take his righteousness and impute it unto us. Paul the Apostle writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus know was about to happen? It's far more than physical pain. I'm looking at all of you, and I don't know all of your story, and I don't know all of your sins, but God does. And all of that would be poured out upon Christ. And he's aware of that. Jesus knew the sins of the world that would be laid upon him. He filled all Scripture concerning the Christ. Isaiah written like 800 years before the Christ. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He came to fulfill all scripture. This is what's going to take place. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that speaking of Jesus, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is troubled. Can you get there with me? Can you understand why? It wasn't just like some, some little decision coming up, and he's like, should I go left or should I go right? He knew everything that was laid ahead. It was way beyond the physical suffering. It was the sin of the world being poured out upon him. No wonder he was troubled. Look at verse 27 again. He starts again by saying, now my soul is troubled. And he says, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Stop there. My reason is, yes! Yes! Get me out of here! Think about how many times we prayed. Something difficult comes into our lives, something that we know is not going to feel good, it's not going to be comfortable, it's going to be hard, and what is our prayer? Oh, Lord, get me out of here. Lord, save me from this. Lord, do something that I don't have to go through this. Jesus says, is that what I'm going to pray? Father, save me from this? But don't we often pray that way? We have such a glorious example in Christ. Christ says, what, do you think I'm going to say, get me out of here? Get me out of these undesirable circumstances? Keep reading with me. Start again. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What? For this purpose. For this purpose. He's saying, I need to endure this colossal suffering. Why? To glorify your name. Hey, wait. What? I need to endure this great suffering. Why? To exalt you, Father. Jesus lays it out for us right here. What should I say? Father, get me out of here. But Father, I'm here for this purpose, to glorify you. Church, what we are reading is so deep and so opposite of our our human tendencies of, of what we would do that we would just want out. Get me out. And Jesus is setting us the example saying, no, no, the focus is all things, everything is for the glory of God. So again, look at those lyrics we talked about earlier. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of, who was Jesus thinking of? It was very clear, right? He, he's speaking going, Father, that you might be glorified. For this purpose I have come. Does that mean that Jesus never thought about us? Absolutely not. But when we speak above all, it was for the glory of God. Church, here's one to hold on to. Ready? Suffering is for the glory of God. 
Anybody ready to head to the exits? I need different news today. I need to hear something other than that. But as we look to Christ and we look to his word, suffering is for the glory of God. Look, Christ's suffering was beneficial to us, but ultimately it was for the glory of God. To that point, James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, Jesus is determined to die for our salvation, to save us. And it's true. But notice that Jesus does not give this as his chief reason. To glorify God is his chief end. To glorify God. Warren Wiersbe goes on and says this. He says, in the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers that we can pray. Either Father, save me, or Father, glorify thy name. I'm going to sit and pause on that one for a second. We have two options in times of suffering in times that there's opportunity for complete surrender is it father save me or is it father by all means glorify your name whatever it takes whatever it means so there's a question that comes down to our christianity also our theology do we believe that this christian walk is more about us being comfortable or more about us being conformable? And I'll explain what that means. More about being comfortable, or more about being conformable? Because if you've walked with Christ long enough, you know that it's not always comfortable. And you know that following Christ is not a get-out-of-jail-free card from suffering. Many of you know that. Many of you have suffered. Many of you are suffering. So comfortable or conformable. Somebody said it earlier when I had you as my students in class. Someone quoted Romans 8.28. Paul the Apostle is talking about suffering in Romans chapter 8. The context of that whole chapter is suffering. So when he writes, and we know for those who love God, that all things work together for good. What are the all things he's talking about? The context is suffering. Isn't that the hardest time to trust God? Now, when, when times are, are going all right, it's like, all right, yeah, God's in, God's in control because everything is smooth and easy. But in the times of distress, in the times of agony as we look to Christ, in the times that emotionally and mentally that we are just oh, done, spent. Paul writes, we know that those who love God and all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, you guys got the word? Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What in the world is the apostle Paul talking about? What is he saying about this chapter in the chapter of suffering when he's saying all things will work together for good? He is not saying it's going to feel good. That's the first point. When James says, count it all joy when you come into various types of trials, he's not saying, click your heels. He's saying, no, God's in control and God's using this. God is in complete control. But he says in verse 29, he gives us the reason. He says it's to be conformed into the image of his son. What does that mean in our language? 
to be more like Christ, to be more like Jesus, that it's through suffering. You say, well, isn't there a better way? Well, let's look at Jesus. What was his route? A route of suffering. A suffering servant, absolutely. This is not popular Christianity, by the way. Popular Christianity is the guy who stands up in a stadium of 30,000 people and says, you can live your best life now. That's popular Christianity. But I beg to even question the word Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. Suffering is part of it. We don't escape it. But it doesn't go unchecked either. God uses that. And he uses it for our good and for his glory. That as we suffer, we can be comforted to know God is using this suffering right now. That I don't have to pray, Father, save me from this, but Father, be glorified in this. I don't have to waste the suffering. Father, be glorified. Then we read in verse 28, and that a voice comes from heaven. I'm here, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is Jesus telling the Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds, says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That he will continue to receive honor and glory. Look, Christ, who's existed forever, from the beginning, he was with, with God, he was God. He comes in human flesh, the incarnation. And if you remember when he comes, Luke chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, we read, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and a lion in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Guess what? God's being glorified. He's being glorified through his son coming to earth, putting on human flesh. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, he continues to bring God glory. Look, as he did many miracles, some people wouldn't believe he was the Christ, but many would turn and worship God. God would be glorified. Just recently, we studied about Lazarus being dead for four days. We read in John chapter 11, verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it, this illness does not lead to death. It is, or excuse me, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'm going to read that again because I went so quick. When Jesus heard, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Remember whose sickness? Lazarus. Lazarus is nearing death at this point, And he goes, oh, don't worry. This sickness is for the glory of God that the Son may be glorified through it. Church, you need to understand this morning and be able to take with you that God is in control of all things and that all things point to the glory of God. All things. And when I say all things, I want you to put in that context as we look at the suffering servant Jesus, suffering. That's the last thing we want to add to our Christianity. Prosperity would be nice. But the reality is it's suffering. Suffering. John Piper said this. 
John Piper said, the deepest reason why we live for the glory of God is because God lives for the glory of God. We are passionate about God's glory because God is passionate about God's glory. Some of you are like, what? Only Piper could say things like that, by the way. What is he saying? He's saying there's nothing greater. If you are the greatest, you're not going to talk about something else being the greatest. You're not boasting yourself. You're making a matter of fact. There is nothing greater than God. And to live for his glory is the greatest purpose. When you see signs that say live your purpose, that's your purpose. Bring God glory. Live for his glory. There's no higher achievement. There's no greater good. And there's no better purpose. God alone deserves all glory. Christ has set us the perfect example. The greatest purpose is to live for the glory of God. That's point number one. Let's move on to point number two, the greatest plan. The greatest plan. You've got to take this, this whole thing that God's glory is above all else. And because of that, he comes up with the greatest plan to bring himself glory. That he would demonstrate love. Now listen, some of us have a, a fairly lofty view of ourselves. We're not that bad. We talked about last week as well. But the reality is what Scripture says, that God demonstrates his love to rebellious, heart-hearted, and unworthy sinners. How's that? He demonstrates his love towards the unlovable. Have you ever used those words? That person's just unlovable. I've tried to love them. They're unlovable. Well, guess what? That was us. The secret, I whispered it. This is his plan. His perfect plan is to demonstrate love to the unlovable. Us. Question is, who would do such a thing? Who would come up with that kind of plan? How about if God says, let's look down and see who's worthy. Let's pick the ones we think are a little bit better than the others, and we'll demonstrate our love to them. Who would come up with this plan? Who would send their righteous son to die for unrighteous people? Who would do that? Who, who would come up with that design, that plan? Well, God would. But why? To bring himself the most glory. To bring himself the most glory. That if you and I go and we look in the mirror and we know who we are, we know what sin that we have committed against the holy God, we can look and say, I am so unworthy of his grace and mercy. I am so unworthy of his grace and mercy. I am so unworthy of the patience of God. And because of that, he receives the most glory. But if I was someone that was just so righteous in all I did, and I look in the mirror and I said, of course God chose me. <laughs> you laugh, but there are people that actually do that. but he chooses the lowly, the foolish, the weak. That is us. And it's to give himself the most glory. To demonstrate that he is far greater than anything else, that his name would be exalted. Let's get back in our text, starting in verse 29. I'm going to read through 33. Starting in verse 29. 
The crowd that stood there, remember they heard the voice from heaven, they heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Obviously, they heard something. They didn't necessarily decipher it all, but they heard something. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. What does he mean by that? Jesus knows who he is. <laughs> There's no identity problem with him being the son, but when the father speaks, it's for the others to say, oh, he's just confirmed it again. This is his beloved son. Verse 31, we read, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, obviously speaking of his impending crucifixion. So let's look at this part right here. It's kind of confusing when he says, now is the judgment of this world. What is he speaking of? Well, we read earlier in chapter 3, you don't have to flip there, it'll be on the screen, or you can flip there, John chapter 3, verse 19, we read, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Judgment's laid open. Those who hate the light being Christ, why? Because they love darkness. But those who come to the light, it's obvious God has drawn them, and they've come out of that darkness. The judgment's being exposed right here. As Christ heads to the cross, he's saying it's going to be apparent right in front of everybody who is for me and who's against me. Here comes the judgment. But he goes on in verse 31, and he says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. But Jesus on that cross, and when he rose, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin, and he defeated death. He conquered them. He conquered all of them. Sin was paid for in its entirety. So Satan being the, the, the prosecutor in court, the accuser, he's now kicked out of the courtroom. He has nothing to stand on. Because the evidence against us has been legally dismissed because it was paid for. It was paid for. We read that earlier in our public reading this morning in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we read this in verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Look what it says. Having forgiven us of all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean? Scripture says God can by no means clear the guilty, that there is a record of sin. Now, for some of us, that's lots of volumes. It says it was paid for on the cross. He canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan's got no power over us anymore. Is he a tempter? Absolutely. But we're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer the condemned. There no longer is any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was done. Paid for it. Look at verse 32 with me, 33. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will, I will draw all people to myself. 
And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Obviously, the impending crucifixion. The greatest plan was for the Christ to go to the cross and offer himself in place of the sinner. A substitution. And yet, this wasn't for the Jew only. And you're like, why would you say that, Pastor? Why would you say it wasn't just for the Jew? It's for all people. Jesus makes it clear here. But remember in the context, Jesus is publicly addressing it. There were Greeks, Gentiles who came and said, we wish to see Jesus. So he says, look, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people. What's he speaking of all? What does that mean? Well, earlier in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What people are those? The Jews. Jesus says, this is for what I've come for, to the Jew. Then he sends out the disciples on their initial mission to go out to share the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he sends them out and he sends them only to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he says, uh, or it reads, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To the Jew first, what Jesus is making clear now, and to the Gentiles. That his sacrifice upon the Christ, salvation would go to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. He had previously spoken of this in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep, meaning not of the Jews. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's what he's speaking of on the cross. It's going to go to all people. Salvation's coming to all. Paul the Apostle would boast in this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the verse that pops out of that epistle, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek the Gentiles. It's for all people. So let's be clear about what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. When he said, when I am lifted up, that's when I am crucified, that he'll draw all people to himself, he was not declaring that every single person would come to him. It's not what he was saying. He was not alluding that every single person is going to be saved. It wasn't some type of universalism. He was simply saying that both Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be amongst those who are going to be saved. Remember John chapter 6? John chapter 6, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. See the work of the Father in salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me. A handful of verses later in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's a work of the Father in your salvation, in my salvation. Jesus is not saying, as I go up on that cross, every single person in the world will be saved. He's saying, people from all tribes and nations, it's not only to the Jews, it's to everybody. God, for his own glory, set forth the perfect plan to bring salvation to unworthy sinners like you and an unworthy sinner like me. Christ died on that cross. He rose from the grave three days later. He conquered sin and death. 
and he did it all for the glory of God. I was waiting for someone to say me. Good students. No one jumped up. I paused. Saw where we were. I was checking for understanding. And no one said a word. So either you were sleeping or you knew that everything he did was for the glory of God. And lastly, we look at this morning the greatest possession. The greatest possession, point number three. I'm sure many of us have seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. Some of you have, some of you haven't. Trust me, I've seen it personally. He who dies with the most toys wins. What an absolute lie. Do you realize that when you die, you don't take any earthly possessions with you? You don't take them with you. A horde of materialism does not testify that you won at life. Jesus would say, what would it matter if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul? What would it matter? I think one of us need to create a bumper sticker that says, he who dies truly knowing Christ is he who wins at life. He who dies truly knowing Christ wins. Truly knowing Christ. What does it mean to truly know Christ? I'll tell you this, truly knowing Christ, there's no better treasure. There's nothing greater than Christ. It is in knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection that brings God the most glory. God that would send his son to die for you and die for me. And us knowing him brings the Father the most glory. But there are those who simply know the facts about Christ. I know that he came. I know that he died. I know that he rose. I know that he died for sinners. And they keep that just as facts. That's not truly knowing Christ. That's knowing about him. You see, he must be yours and you must be his. It's beyond just agreeing to the facts. Let's look in our text and we'll see this unfold. We'll finish off in these final verses, verses 34 through 36. We read, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Well, little did they know that he was going to rise from the dead and he would remain forever. Uh, They said, who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. I see a word over and over in there. Yeah, light. First thing when you study the Bible, when there's repetition, Take note of repetition. So the first question I ask, what's the light? Who's the light? What's going on here? Got it in context, but the very opening of his gospel, we read, John writes, John chapter 1, verse 6, he said, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's speaking of John the Baptist. He said, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world, excuse me, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The light being Jesus. John the Baptist comes on the scene to point the way to Christ. He is the light. 
Jesus is now in front of the crowd speaking of himself. The light is with you. And he tells them, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's the big piece that's important. He doesn't say, while you have the light, just ask more questions and get more head knowledge about the light. He said, you need to believe in the light that you might become a son of light, a son of God. That's what separates us. Those who are sons of God and those who are not. Those who have the spirit of God and those who don't. Those who truly know God and those who don't. Being a son of God. The Spirit of God might dwell in us. Again, the gospel goes out to you this morning as it does week after week after week after week. And my plea with the Lord is that one of these weeks He would draw one of you who thought, I thought I knew God. I thought I had it down, but I had facts. That perhaps today He would draw you to truly knowing That you would go from prayers of where he's just a genie in the sky, where you pray, God, save me from this. God, help me from this. To God, glorify your name. God, here I am. Whatever it is, that my life would be for your glory, not my comfort, but that I would be conformable, that you would conform me into the image of Christ. Church, that is a different cry out to God. Truly know him to know the purpose that he set forth for your life. Do you know that all of our days are numbered by God? Anybody know the number? Neither do I. Haven't got a clue. He also says he does the number of hairs on our head, which at this point, pretty easy. (laughs) You guys could probably figure that one out, right? Um, But days, we often go to, well, the average lifespan for males is this, and for females is that, and the United States is this, and that country is this. You know, right now, the earth could split open? That was the number of days. I hear about the most crazy ways that people die. and go, that was absurd. This person on the freeway who the car in front of them kicked up a piece of rebar, you know, long metal rod? Kicked up a piece of rebar, it went straight through the windshield, impaled them, and they died. What? Right, that's absurd. It's like, what, how does that happen? I heard somebody else on the freeway, someone kicked up a manhole, you know, the round circle metal plate, and the same thing, it came through and decapitated them. Now, I know that's graphic, but the reality is this. We think that I'm going to live till I'm old and, and just, you know, fall asleep and then wake up and then that's, that's it. We don't know the number of our days. And yet, graciously, the gospel goes forward to us time and time again, that we would truly know Christ. That if it was a piece of rebar, whether the earth cracked open, or if we lived until a ripe old age, that we go to be with Christ. That we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus says there'll be many who will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Many who thought they knew God because their only cry to God was, God, help me, save me, do this for me, rub the genie bottle and give me more. Jesus set the example, that's not what it's about. Above all is the glory of God. So right now, can you honestly, as you sit there within yourself, 
think and reason out and say, yes, I live for the glory of God. That is my pursuit of Christ. Now, before you start flogging yourself and whipping yourself, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a pattern, a trajectory. Is that the aim? Is the aim for the glory of God? Because that's the aim that his spirit puts us on as he comes within us to lead us on this path of righteousness, to bring glory to God. That as I go through suffering, oh God, I might say, help me. Help me endure this for your glory. Or I might pray, God, if it be your will, remove this from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. Thine be the glory. That all things are about you. Last verse we'll read, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's why the mantra, or you might call it a tagline of our church, is for God, for his glory, forever. Why? Because as we started this morning, I said, let's start a biblical theology of worship class. Well, guess what? That's the bottom line that all things are for him, for his glory, forever. And if we can get our minds wrapped around that, empowered by his spirit, our God will be exalted. He'll be exalted in our suffering. He'll be exalted in our sorrows. He'll be exalted at all times. That's the pursuit. That's the aim. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to you for these magnificent words of the Lord Jesus. Oh God, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw a man or woman or both unto Christ this morning. By your word and your spirit, bring them to a faith that is genuine. May it not be said of anyone in this place that they had the light, but they did not believe in the light. We pray, oh God, that you would save. God, we pray as a body that we would turn to you Turn to your holiness. Turn to your goodness. And that we would cry out, to you be the glory. God, for those this morning who are suffering, they're going through the mental distress, the emotional distress. God, might they turn to you right now and say, to you be the glory. To you be the glory. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus.